the National Archives podcast series. What can you learn from a DNA test? Presented by Chris Pomery. The title of the talk is What Can You Learn from a DNA Test? Well, I'm going to focus primarily on the Y chromosome test for reasons that I'll explain as we go through. Has anyone actually heard me give a variation of this talk before? I do actually update these every time before I give them, but has anyone heard them before? Have we got any professional geneticists in the house? Any statisticians? Oh, that's a fantastic relief. Great. I'm home and dry. Okay, so what is there that could be found using a DNA test? I think you need to think of DNA testing as a tool. It's a, it's a tool. You, you can do genealogy without it, but it is a very useful tool in the toolbox now. And I've highlighted here six particular things you might want to think about. If you, if you, ha- you may have particular problems as we go through the talk that you'll realise that DNA testing might be able to help you with. The first one is to verify the accuracy of a specific family tree. If you've got a family tree that's got a few question marks in it, you may well be able to use DNA testing as a way of clarifying those questions and po- providing answers and veri- or verifying hypotheses or queries that you've got about the family tree. For me, my primary interest is the second one, B, reconstructing the trees within an entire surname. Now, obviously, lots of people have been carrying on surname studies for for donkey's years, but with the advent of DNA, we now have a way of checking whether all that documentary research is correct. Uh, I took over a surname project in 2002 on the unexpected and still much lamented death of a guy called Tony Pomeroy, who'd been running it for 20 years, and he had a, several feet worth of archives with family trees that had been lovingly put together and submitted by people over the preceding two decades. Right at that point, we started doing the, the whole DNA testing program. And I can tell you, quite a few people who spent a lot of time putting those trees together have had a few shocks. Because with the DNA evidence back, some of those trees do not stack up any longer. And of course, by shuffling the data, documentary data around, we now have a consistent set of DNA data and documentation. And I can tell you, I, didn't, I wasn't actually tracking all of those changes. I was just aware as I was doing it in the database that I was making you know, some very fundamental changes for some people. But that's, for me, this is my primary interest, is, is, is number B. C, it might suggest whether your surname had a single ancestor at its head. That's slightly more troublesome this week than it was about a month ago, for reasons I'll talk about later. But basically what, what it means is you can, have, you can help generate a hypothesis which will inform your documentary research activity as to whether your, your surname is more likely to have had a single person founding that surname at a concrete place at a specific time or not. It also might help you identify if your surname has variants. Now, most surnames do have variants attached to them, Some of them are quite logical variants. Some of them are highly unpredictable variants. Some of them, uh, I know to my cost, are almost um, uh, impossible to find variants. But they do exist. Um, And, of course, if you test people with your different uh, variant surnames, you'll find out quite quickly whether the DNA results come back with a match for anyone within your core surname. Number E is interesting. You can also discover whether your surname is a variant of somebody else's surname. This is something I hadn't really twigged about five or ten years ago when I started following the DNA area or started lecturing on it. But I now know of one person who's managed to track a surname back through all their variants, and they're started asking themselves, well, okay, we're in a specific locality in Staffordshire, this case is. Let's have a look at some of the surnames around that locality 700 years ago and see if we get any matches. So this particular woman managed to find out that her surname of Meats appears to be, genetically, a variant of Myatt. Now, I would never have guessed that. She didn't guess that. But that's something that's come out as a result of the DNA testing. And I hope that that result will stand up in the years ahead, because obviously, as more and more DNA data is collected, our overall picture does tend to change. And then the final point here, uncovering some of your pre-surname history. There have been lots of TV programs in the last few years about um, Anglo-Saxons, Vikings, you know, tracing your, your deep ancestry using DNA testing. I, I'm sure most of you will have seen at least one of those programs somewhere. You would have caught it. So there is, a, there is an area or a particular use of DNA testing where you can investigate your pre-surname history. Now, I'm a historian really of the 
post-medieval period, so I'm really interested in post-1500. I, n- I know a little bit about this stuff. I don't follow it in any great detail. And I can tell you one thing now, which is very different from 10 years ago, is there is a vast amount of material on the internet which I'll direct you to as we go through, which if you want to do further research and read up in depth, you certainly can. The three basic types of DNA tests. The top one is the one that I'm going to focus on today, which is the Y chromosome test. This is a test of the direct paternal line only, for the simple reason that only men have a Y chromosome. So I bear a Y chromosome, which I got from my father. And so you can trace a genetic signature that passes down the direct paternal line from father to son to grandson and so on. So this is why it's a fantastic tool to assist in reconstructing trees within a surname, specifically because the surname is also handed down in the same manner. Or it has been. As we all know, that system in the, in the post-war period is, is, is now breaking down quite quickly. But for most of the research that we would be doing, let's say back from the, um, you know, the, the previous two generations going back, that link between the surname and the Y chromosome DNA is, is, is pretty well established. The second test that you can t- uh, buy is a mitochondrial DNA test. This is, you can think of as an exact mirror of the Y chromosome test, except that it tests the direct maternal line. So I have my mother's uh, mitochondrial DNA, and she has her mother's, and she has her mother's, so on up the maternal line. Now, the reason I talk about the Y chromosome rather than the mitochondrial DNA is that, in fact, you can think of them as mirror images. So I find it most useful to focus on the Y chromosome because that's got all the surname implications as well. The other problem that I have with the mitochondrial DNA test is that there's actually no clear family history application. There are very specific ways in which you could use it if you had two direct maternal descendants and you wanted to test with, you know, to check that both of those maternal lines of ancestry were correct. You could use a mitochondrial DNA test in exactly the same way as you would use a Y chromosome DNA test to see if two people with the same surname were related, whom you suspected were. The problem is, is, is finding anyone back further than a couple of generations along the maternal line, because most people don't research the maternal line with anything like the intensity that they would the paternal line. But when I'm talking about the Y chromosome test, you can think in your own mind that there's a mirror reflection of this with the mitochondrial DNA test. Also, if you, if you go out onto the internet and look for information about it, you'll find that there aren't so many examples of people who've been able to solve family history problems using mitochondrial DNA testing. And when you do, if you look at them closely, you'll notice that generally they only go back about two or three generations because it's very hard to find second t- descendants to test if you go back six or seven generations or further. I mean, with the Y chromosome test, now we're able to, on some of the very big trees, to go back about nine generations to fix the, the DNA signature of someone back in the 1600s. Very difficult to do that with mitochondrial DNA, a lot of, a lot of legwork. Then the third one I've popped down here is the autosomal DNA test. These are the kind of tests that you'll see advertised which will give you an overall picture of your DNA. Um, We'll come back with some results saying you're 30% European, 20% Asian, and 10% American Indian, and so on and so forth. I don't talk about these at all because I think these are somewhat... They're not really useful for genealogists or family historians. They're kind of interesting if you've got a, a, a notion of your background and you want to see if there's anything exotic in there. But there are lots of reasons why they're not very accurate and they're not, as well as not being very useful. So I'm just going to leave that whole area on one side. The test principles of the Y chromosome test, the basic principle <coughs> is that genetic data is passed on intact from father to son. What you need to know is that if you, do, if you look at two Y chromosome DNA results and they're not absolutely identical, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't share a common ancestor within the time frame that accounts for their sharing a surname as well. Because there is random mutation in DNA as it's passed on from one generation to another. The test measures the Y chromosome at very specific places. These are pre-agreed places, pre-agreed by the testing labs. So when you see um, a particular test being offered, you can compare it against other labs that are offering the same sort of test. And those places are known as markers. And they 
the test itself, the result comes back, it derives a set of numbers for the value of the, which represent a, a numerical figure, which represent the value of the chemical structure that's found there at that particular point on the, uh, the marker. Again, you don't need to know what it's measuring. What you need to know is how to evaluate the different results that come back. So a man's test result is a string of numbers for a, diff- for, for a number of markers. So you get a number of numerical values at different markers. And I would call that string of numbers a DNA signature. That sounds as though almost as though you create it yourself, but it's not. It's, it's signature in the sense it's, it's, it's something that marks you out. And that, no, that DNA signature will always be expressed at a particular resolution of markers. You can buy a standard test now for 67 markers. The original tests, when I got involved, were 12 markers. And the very first paper that was published on this used only four markers. So as you can see, there's been an increase in the number of markers that are available over time. But I'll come back to that in more detail later. So to compare two DNA results, you mark the degree of difference between each string of numbers, not the numerical values of the individual markers. And I'll put some results up quickly just to show how that works. Now what I've done here is I've borrowed some results from a guy called Doug Mummer in the States who's been doing some research on his surname, which is um, uh, from the Baltic states, Eastern European Baltic states originally. What you're seeing across on the rows here are an individual. So an individual ID number 16 with the surname Moomaw. Can you imagine going through life called Moomaw? That's pretty tough. The rows down here are individual markers. So that bold 393, 390, 19, these are the names of the markers. And so in the spreadsheet, what you're seeing is for each individual, you're seeing the um, numerical results at each marker. And the the row across then represents the DNA signature for that individual. Now, you can imagine now with 67 markers that this spreadsheet might march off confidently in this direction. And some of the big projects have now got five, six, seven hundred people with the same surname testing. So that spreadsheet rockets through the floor all the way down to the basement. Um, what I've done is I've just chopped a bit off so you can have a look at it because you <laughs> it's quite a beast to try and wrestle with. Um, I think we've got 12 markers here and about 15, 20 people, individuals mentioned. Now what you'll see, I've colour-coded it to make it easier. Where the results are the same, I've colour-coded this rather fetching microsoft light yellow colour. And you can see that there's this whole band here where all of the m- results on every marker are absolutely identical. And then you've got this little one here, which I've put in blue, where this chap here has got a 14 on this marker instead of a 13 like all the rest. And that is a random mutation. It's just popped up there at some point. Um, here we've got a slightly different random mutation because that random mutation there with these three people is shared by all three of them. And what that would lead you to suspect if, this, if all these results were taken randomly, you'd say you might hazard a guess that maybe this mutation has been around for a bit longer within the tree than this one. This might be a very recent one. But again, you can't really say that unless you match it up against the documentary data, which I'm just about to do. And then we've got this one down here. Mr. Mummer, I don't have an ID number for him, I didn't put him down, but you can see that all his results, apart from this one on the end, these are all different. He's got a 15 here instead of a 14, a 10 instead of 11, a 17 instead of a 14. So he's way out. He's only got two that are the same as the rest. And that you would look at and you'd say, this is clearly different genetic material from this or this. Now, the point is, the question mark is not to say that you just then take that result and throw it away. Because this guy could quite easily be part of the same family tree as all these people. He's just got different DNA. And of course, I'm sure you can think of plenty of reasons why he might have different DNA. And this... So basically, in a nutshell, this is the whole process that you do. You test, you test the people you want to test, you then group them together, and you look at anomalies. And I'll explain a little bit more about um, the implications of this process as we go on. Now, those are the results as they look on the spreadsheet. How might that turn out on a, in a, in, when you're looking at a traditional family tree? Well, Doug, bless him, has already done it, so I borrowed it. And what he was doing was he was looking for um, ans- uh, descendants 
There was this original guy called Leonard Mummer, so that would be their first emigrant coming from Europe across into the States. And he had lots of people who'd already, who'd documented their trees, but he wanted to check that they really had done the documentation correctly. Now, what's very interesting is you can see that Leonard has got four sons here. Uh, the, the tree is, is fairly schematic. It, it just shows the male members, and it only shows those male members with descendants who've had at least one ancestor tested. So, of course, this is actually a much bigger tree with lots of, you know, the usual tree chaos in it. But I've just stripped it down so it shows this. So you can see his four sons here. And what's really interesting is if you look at the edges of the tree, you can see that this is a yellow result, and this is a yellow result, and all these are yellow results. That's really encouraging, because what you want to do is to find that you can lead back to the common ancestor and find the same DNA result amongst the descendants. So you can see amongst these sons, there's a yellow result. Um, Amongst this son, a yellow result. And this son, all yellow results. So you can be reasonably confident, in fact, you can be very confident indeed, that that result is his DNA signature. Now, you can imagine if you were doing a huge project for a very high-frequency surname, and this was just one tree amongst dozens, that's what you want to do. You want to try and identify his DNA signature, which this does really well. And what about those mutations? Well, here we've got these three ones that have had that, um, one, that green mutation I showed you before. And you can see that they're actually all clustered together underneath a common ancestor here. So, in fact, that mutation probably happened here or there at that point and that it's been held by all the descendants because you found them here in those three different places. And here's the blue one. It's not found by... That mutation's not found here, so obviously the mutation didn't happen up here. It happened further down. And that really is it. That's That's the whole process in a nutshell. This is a really wonderfully clean example. Of course, in real life, it's not always that simple. Sometimes you find that you've got a blue one over here and you have to think, well, why is that blue one over there? It could be that you need, there's a, a, a problem. The most obvious thing will be a problem with the documentation is that actually that descendants, there's a descendant link or ancestry link that's wrong there that should actually be over there at that point. So you can have great fun trying to check through all the cross, cross-reference, all the data and make sure that everything matches up. So the process you go through as you collect all those DNA results <coughs> is you compare those DNA signatures of the men whose surnames are either the same or whom you think are variants or related. And then you um, cluster together those men who potentially share a common male ancestor into genet- what I would call a genetic family. So all the results are the same or similar enough that you can say that these, these people all descend from the same individual. And, of course, at the same time, it separates out those that cannot share a genetic ancestor within a genealogically relevant time frame. Um, They may well share a documentary ancestor, but not a genetic one. And this point here, the genealogically relevant time frame, is really important. I'm slightly irritated with the testing company that I'm using at the moment because they just, just the other week, they popped somebody into my project um, which is a nice, tightly organised project, which I know very well. And suddenly this different person was in there. I was thinking, well, <laughs> I don't remember him. What's he doing there? He's a Mr. Etheridge. He's nothing to do with me. And what had happened was that the, um, the DNA testing company had been badgered by this bloke to try and find um, someone he might be related to. And they said, oh, well, you, one of your results looks like one of the ones in the Pomeroy family uh, project. We'll put you in there. So I've spent you know, my time trying to explain to him why, unless he's got any idea why and how he might be related, the fact that his DNA is slightly similar or even, even identical with one of the members of my project doesn't mean a hill of beans, as Mr. Bogart would say, because um, we're talking about a genealogically relevant time frame. There are lots of people who share the same Y chromosome DNA with different surnames, and the link between them goes back much earlier than the genealogically relevant time frame. In fact, it might surprise you to know that all of the men in this room are related. In fact, we're all related. We all descend from one single man who lived about 150,000 years ago, plus minus. So although we, we, we have our differences, we are all related to each other. Of course, we're never going to be able to document much further back, 
than 500 years. So we'll settle for that as the time frame that we're, we're, we're interested in. So I, um, we could all get very warm and fuzzy about this, and you, know, you might like to buy me a beer at some point on that basis. <laughs> but in fact, it's not very useful to us as historians. So bear in mind this genealogically relevant um, time frame. Um, and then, of course, it directs your research, so you can then verify with those men in the genetic families which, which appear to share a common male ancestor actually do so. And, of course, this is an iterative process. You, it goes backwards and forwards over and over again because you're looking for documentary evidence to try and build that um, conclusion. You might need to DNA test some more men in the family tree just to make sure. I mean, you can imagine that, oops, if he'd only tested this one and this one and this one, he might feel, well, actually, maybe I need to do a bit more testing. Of course, you do actually reach a point where there aren't many more people you want to test, which is actually where we are in our project now. It's actually quite difficult to find someone who's useful to test. And sometimes you might need to increase the resolution of specific results that are unclear. That's the point that you made, the, the, the grey area ones. If you've only, for example, tested them on 12 or 25 markers, you might then take that person and maybe a couple of others who you think they're related to and say, OK, we need to march them off in this direction and get 67 markers for those. Because what tends to happen is, even if they look the same at one point, they do start to diverge eventually. If they don't start to diverge, if they really, at 67 markers, they look to be about 64, 65 the same, then you're pretty sure that they, or you're, certainly as a hypothesis, you, you would say that they're, they're, they're the same uh, genetic family. So what, what happens when the results don't match? Uh, obviously, if you've got perfectly matching results, that's all um, hunky-dory. But what happens when the results don't match? Well, it's quite possible that you'll find more than one DNA signature within a single family tree. Because you can imagine that, let's say you've got a very large and very old family tree going back, I don't know, nine, ten generations. If one of the original founder's grandsons had a child that was fathered by someone other than him, all of that boy's descendants, of which there may be many hundreds now in the present day available for you to test, they will all have a completely different DNA signature. And so the thing is, you don't get hung up on the fact that each family tree has a specific DNA signature. When you start the process, if you've got no documentary research whatsoever, you'll get a bunch of DNA results which tend to clump together with one very strong result and then a whole bunch of other ones which are found less frequently. Um, but once you amalgamate your DNA results with, the, with your documentary work, what you start to see are family trees getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and then having more than one DNA signature associated with them. If you're lucky, it'll be, all, it'll be one and then a few small ones. But sometimes, if that illegitimate event happened a long, long time ago, you, you, it may well be that virtually everyone within that family tree stems from that illegitimate event, and you can't actually find any legitimate descendants from those very old ancestors. So this is, goes back to the point I made right at the beginning, which is it's, it's the marriage or marriage, that's probably the wrong metaphor. It's the, it's, the, it's the bringing together of the DNA evidence and the documentary evidence so that both are consistent with each other. Um, now, there are many reasons for this sort of what I would call this interloping DNA. Um, you can have uh, adoption, both formal and informal. Uh, no one's quite sure how often that happened historically in the past, whether it was recorded and how it would be recorded. There are instances within my own project of deliberate and, or even legal name-changing by a man marrying into, a family, into the family in order, and taking on the surname in order to uh, gain an inheritance, for example. And, of course, if he was born Mr. Wakefield and suddenly becomes Mr. Pomeroy, his DNA doesn't change. He's got different DNA that's coming in from the outside that's not been associated with the Pomeroys before, but is with all of his descendants. Um, illegitimacy, that's the, that's the, that's the big one. Um, obviously, if, if um, somebody else fathered a Pomeroy child and he wasn't a Pomeroy himself, then we don't have Pomeroy DNA associated with that child. Um, we'd have his, the DNA that he brought with him, and he could, he could be anyone. Um, another one that I've got in my project is naturalization, uh, which, of course, leads to the formation of a new tree. I've got, um, 
I remember when I was started doing the, the DNA project, we had some funding through Brian Sykes at Oxford from the Wellcome Trust to do a surname project. This is almost 10 years ago now. And I started cold calling people around the country saying, um, I know this sounds a bit wacky, but would you like to give, me, give us your DNA? And I remember uh, phoning someone in London and getting um, this chap's wife on the phone, and she just started laughing. He said, well, because I was, I was giving her the spiel about um, uh, how we're a, a, a noble family from Devon and possibly you might be related, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, no, 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 we're the Russian Pomeroys. Um, because we have some, we have a, a Pomeransky family, a Pomerantz family, and a Pomerantz with a Z, all of which naturalized and became Pomeroys. They don't have many descendants, but they're, 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 they're there in the mix. And of course, if you were sampling randomly and you've got this sort of rather unusual result that you never find anywhere else within the project, it could, it, it's possible that if you go back 150 years, that might be, might be the reason. Um, the third point, it may be hard to pinpoint exactly in which generation the new DNA entered the family. Yep, that's definitely the case. Um, if you DNA tested every single male within a surname, you'd have a sporting chance of being able to work out where all those things changes happened. But because so many lines um, have daughtered out over the years or had no children at all, um, it, may well not, it may, may just not be clear at all. Um, and the final point here on this, on this slide, your DNA result is not your family history, your family tree is, that's the point I made earlier, about the outcome that you want from using the DNA testing process is to be able to have a better documented family history. Um, just a brief look at some of the m major projects that I'm aware of. I mean, there are many, many thousands of surname DNA projects underway at the moment. Um, the top one is the one that I'm running. Um, I started running the DNA project just about the time, unfortunately, that the guy who was running the documentary project passed away. So I then had to take over the documentary project as well. And we were basically running these two in parallel. Uh, and we've actually got to a stage now where we've, um, the research that's been done by everyone, we've identified the family tree for every, every descendant in the UK. Um, so we, we know that there's no one living in the UK who has a tree that goes back beyond the 1800s that we don't already know about. So we've now got at least one DNA test associated with each of those trees. In some cases, we've got more than that, two, three, five, eight tests. And all of that's coalescing together. And we're starting to get to a point now where we, it's actually quite difficult to find someone to DNA test. We've almost reached the limit of how we can use DNA testing. And so we're now stuck in parish research <laughs> the, rest of, the rest of eternity. Um, very, very few surname projects are anywhere near that um, stage at the moment. So if you go and have a look at other people's projects, you'll see that they're collecting as many individuals as they can in order to make those genetic families. They're at that sort of stage. Um, one project that's ahead of us is a project by a guy called John Creer. Um, he, um, it's, a, it's not a very common surname. It's not as common as ours. But he wanted to test to see whether... Um, the single or ancestor origin thesis um, stood up. And he, he, the result that he got back was uh, almost all of his results, he did about 20, um, came out as with the same DNA. And that corroborates his documentary uh, research, which says that there was a single um, ancestor in the Isle of a man in the 1600s. <clears throat> the Dalton project is one that I'm involved with, giving them some advice. Dalton is a much more common surname than Pomeroy. There are a lot of them. Um, most people will know of or have heard of or have met one in, the, in your lives. Um, but they, even they coalesce into large um, genetic families. Um, there are two large genetic families in Ireland and there's one massive one in the USA uh, for reasons which I'll explain a little bit later. Oh, I can explain now. Um, the reason why DNA testing in America is slightly different from here is because there are two different populations but it is actually very noticeable in our project and also in the Dalton project. If you imagine, if you envisage, for example, all of the Daltons in the UK, there's a very high degree of genetic diversity within those, that group. But only a small subset of that total genetic diversity ever went to the States and then founded a, a family that you can document in the States. So... 
those people you're testing in Australia, in um, New Zealand, in America, in Canada, they're all a subset of the original population in the UK. It's very good to test those people overseas because you do build... The more results you have, the better the project is as a whole. But what you're, what you're doing for them is you're trying to identify the original ancestor in the UK. If you take all of the surname results and you mix together the Australians, the Americans and the Brits all in one big pot, you're not looking at the same kind of data. You actually have to strip out all of those immigrants. So you're left with... The simplest way to do it is, to, is just to take the people who live in Britain. And then you look at them. That's, that's your matrix of results for the surname, which you can then take back towards the foundation. And what tends to happen is that those early immigrants to the States, um, some of them are highly visible genetically within, within, within the Americas. We have one guy who left um, within our own project, who left in the 1630s, who now has several thousand living Pomeroy descendants, all with the same DNA. And I can tell you now that if you DNA test a Pomeroy in America, you're 85% likely, I can tell you what the DNA test result will be, because they were so successful in uh, propagating themselves. And if, if you can, if you can, well, there are obvious reasons why. I mean, there was there was an unlimited land bank available for two centuries, and there was um, a great value placed upon having very great use um, in in having large families. So naturally, they 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 bred. Uh, it wasn't quite the same over here, and of course, you had more genetic diversity to start with. Some of those that gene- genetic diversity would have dropped out because some of those lines would have died out, and because of the illegitimacy and all those other reasons, there'll be new genetic. Uh, material coming into the surname. And your job when you're documenting the, the, your family trees is to try and sift and sort all of that out. And then the, um, the fourth one I put down there, the meats, that was the maybe a variant of, of Myatt. That was the one I mentioned earlier. Um, all of these projects fall are being done by members of the Guild of One Name Studies. And if you're at all interested in surname studies, I would really recommend they're 12 pounds a year to join. It's just the, the members there, there are t- about 2,500 of them. And there's a, a vast store of knowledge within that organisation that's well worth tapping into. And it's very easy to tap into. Um, don't be put off by the, the title um, Guild of One Name Studies. They're not a guild in any sense. In, uh, they don't set any standards, really, that they um, uh, the, the barriers to entry for people joining. And um, there's, there's, there's no prescribed way in which you have to do things. The only reason it's called the Guild of One Name Studies is because that delivers the acronym of GOON, which the founders back in the 1970s thought was very witty indeed. <laughs> uh, slightly lost on some of the younger generation, but I can tell you all, you've all got it. Now let's go back to the other point I mentioned about um, the deep ancestry, the pre-surname history. This is a rather fetching map that I... Uh, filched from the National Geographic. They did a, a year or two ago. And basically this is a map that in a very, very schematic form um, shows you how mankind spread out of Africa. Over here into Asia, down here towards Australia, here into Asia, and uh, also this way into Europe. And that's, that's the basic pattern of human um, expansion. Uh, in prehistory. You can imagine starting here, it says here 200,000 years ago, but you know, 150,000 years ago. Crossing over here maybe 50,000 years ago. Uh, the first wave, uh, first wave coming in to Europe about 40,000 years ago. And then also actually successive waves coming back in that direction. I did used to have a more complicated one than that, but actually it just took so much time to try and explain it all. Um, and it, 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 is, it is subject to fluctuation, but the basic out of Africa thesis has been confirmed by genetic studies over and over again, both on the male line and on the <coughs> mitochondrial line. There, um, there are, of course, arguments because sometimes the linguistic and the archaeological evidence doesn't perfectly align with the genetic evidence. So there's still a bit of friction in certain areas and some big debates, but the basic picture isn't, isn't really disputed anymore. If you're interested in... Um, being involved in a big project, or if you want to find out more, I would really recommend having a look at the Genographic Project. This is run by an academic called Spencer Wells, who is, I think he's still associated with the University of East Anglia, uh, which would be Colchester. 
Um, but this big project is run by the National Geographic Society and funded by IBM. If you just Google, Google, if you Google Genographic, um, it will come up right on the top of the search lists. Um, he's written, this is the second book he's written on, on this, uh, which is available on Amazon. Um, I haven't read it, but I'm sure it's excellent, because he, he did um, a book before he got involved in the Genographic project, which was very good indeed. Uh, there's another project privately funded, the Sorensen Molecular Genetics Foundation project. Um, that's not quite so visible, but if you Google uh, Sorenson DNA, you'll find some details on that. Both of these projects are collecting data on Y-chromosome and mitochondrial DNA tests. And basically what they're trying to do is to, is to put more detail into this map. So what about the deep ancestry of the, of the Britons? Where do, where do we come from? Well, the pattern's fairly straightforward. There's an, an early arriving um, genetic group which uh, we, uh, we would label, depends how you want to label it, I would label it the R1B group because that's the way I think of it. That's a, 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 an uber-genetic label. Um, but you could also think of it as a, as a, as a, as a Celtic population that you might see that referred to. Basically, what you have to bear in mind is, is that um, 10, 12,000 years ago, there wasn't anyone living in Britain. There was about a kilometre of ice above our heads. And as the ice melted, and eventually after about 6,000 years, the North Sea formed, it was only at that point that Britain became a distinct um, entity, um, geographical entity, as an island. And what humankind did was it sat out the ice ages, the last ice age, in what are known as refugia, of which one of which would be um, in northern Iberia, um, others also down in the um, around sort of Bulgaria, down that way. And there are, there are a couple of these places where pockets of humanity sat out the Ice Age. And of course, as soon as the ice started melting, they all started walking north. The first ones to walk north, the ones that always went the furthest west, were this, as it were, Celtic population, which I think of as R1B. So they were the early arrivers immediately after the Ice Age. And then the population, populating of Britain is marked by later arrivals, always spreading from east to west across Europe. And if you start looking at these uh, sort of uber-genetic labels, which are known as haplogroups, you'll see references to haplogroups J and haplogroups I. Um, the I haplogroup is associated with uh, Scandinavian um, bloodlines, uh, that's the one that might also sometimes get labelled as a Viking. Um, though, of course, you can't tell whether your ancestor was a Viking or not. It's only a very broad brush indication. And J is more for Mediterranean, um, so that would be from Italy, Spain, around that area. Um, if you start reading up the literature, you will find some papers that will talk about some other haplogroups which are, occur very, very rarely in Britain. One interesting one um, was uh, some analysis of some Roman remains and also um, some individuals living in Yorkshire, I think it was, where they found that they were carrying a, um, a haplogroup that is now only found in Africa. So you think of that as one of the original haplogroups that existed in Africa 150,000 years ago. But what's that doing up in Yorkshire? Well, the answer they came up with was it may well have been a Roman soldier who would have been uh, based um, in northern England um, 1,500 years ago and may well have left obviously a male soldier would have left amongst his descendants the mark of his African ancestry. And that's, so there's, there's quite a lot of fun to be had with looking at very rare haplotypes. But I can tell you within my um, project, I've got 100 people in it. I've only got um, R1B, I and J. I don't have anything, anything fancy in my project at all. If you're very interested in having a look at how those haplogroups work out, it's, it's, it's a very big area. It's well worth, it's quite fascinating to look at. But it's beyond the scope of what I can really talk about today. If you go to Wikipedia and you look under human Y-chromosome DNA haplogroups or any sort of combination of those words, you'll, be, you'll find pages which describe the different haplogroups and what the associations are and the geographical links that they have. So Britain was settled by successive waves of post-Ice Age invaders. Again, this is a topic I don't really want to go into because there's, a, there's a, a degree of contention amongst archaeologists about this. But the basic thing to think about is that maybe there weren't as many uh, people physically moving as once thought. There's always an argument as whether it was the ideas that moved or the people that moved. 
and if it was people that moved, whether it was men that moved or women or both. Um, but without going in, in, in any detail, uh, even attempting to go into that, um, you just remember the, the successive waves of post-Ice Age um, settlers. The key point, though, is that there's no clear genetic resolution on the level of individual tribes. Um, one testing company used to offer a Viking test. I'm not sure they still do that now. But there isn't actually a Viking test. All there was was an indication as to whether you might belong to this particular Hapro group, which ain't the same thing at all. Um, so you can't distinguish between Jutes, Picts, Vikings, and Saxons. Um, it, there's some optimism that we might be able to get a degree of, of resolution sorted out in the next couple of years, which might allow some tentative um, um, associations. But, but, but I, I'm doubtful on that, I really am. Um, a guy I know at UCL, Dr. Thomas, Mark Thomas, uh, described this in the Guardian article once as genetic astrology, which I think is quite a, quite a neat way of doing it. And um, I know also that um, uh, if you saw the programme on Channel 4 a year or two ago, The Face of Britain, they handled this rather well, because, of course, the, you can imagine the tension between the geneticists who want to be accurate and, and, and the uh, TV producers who want a really good story. And the way they got around it was they did the old envelope business and opening the envelope and reading the results and said, and the results, that as we're presented, we said, we're, you're five times more likely to have a Scandinavian origin than a Celtic origin, for example. Okay, so that covered both bases. It was saying, we're not saying you're a Viking, but you're probably more likely to have a Scandinavian origin than not, but you can't say distinctly because actually you do find some I haplogroup people that are associated with, um, with, with, with Southern Europe as well. Um, just to give you that clearer picture as to how this works, I took these figures from a very, very early study, but they're so nice, I keep using them. Um, I described that first wave of people moving from east to west and from south to north after the Ice Age, associated with this haplogroup, R1b, or you can think of that as an Atlantic um, haplogroup. You can see in the west of Ireland, the population there is almost universally that, that particular haplogroup. And you can see that that density diminishes in Ireland, Britain, Germany, until you get to Sweden, further east, where it's only found in one in five of the population. This second wave, this is the allegedly Viking one, you can see there's virtually none in the west of Ireland. Some found in Ireland. There were actually Viking settlements in the east of Ireland, in Dublin. Um, about the same percentage as in Britain, roughly one in five. Uh, one in three in Germany, and more than half in Sweden, hence, hence its Viking label. Um, but this is the one that I really like to pinpoint as well, which is, this is, a, as it were, a diversity index. Because there are lots of different haplogroups which you can, which you can label. What you can see is that in the west of Ireland, it's a very, very uniform sample. There, there's very few other haplogroups found there. Again, in Ireland, a great degree of uniformity. In Britain, one in eight come from a haplogroup that's neither R1b or I. So that's the J's, the Q's, and all the others. Um, again, Germany more diverse, and Sweden more diverse still. So that's the general rule. The further east <coughs> you look in Europe, there's more genetic diversity at a haplogroup level. And right at the far west, there's virtually none at all. And this, this first wave, R1b, um, will be very, very visible in any British surname project. And you'll find a few of these. Um, the proportions in my project are almost identical to this. So we're very normal. Um, I'm going to wrap up now just with a quick review of what's, what's been happening recently. Um, there's been a, a substantial growth of Y-chromosome testing over the years. The first known use by a family historian uh, that I know of was in 1997, so by a guy called Alan Savin. Um, commercial tests have been available since 2001, and I would guess on the Y chromosome, you're probably looking at 300,000 tests now done worldwide. The largest testing company announced the other day that they just had half a million tests, but that would include the mitochondrial ones as well and some of the autosomal that they do. So I think you're looking at about 6,000 surname projects worldwide. Possibly, they um, look at it maybe even up as far as 90,000 surnames covered. 
So we're getting to a point where, where a significant proportion of all the total surnames in the world have now had at least one DNA test associated with them. Um, and there are several large-scale projects underway that are combining Y chromosome and mitochondrial tests. I've already mentioned the genographic. That's the one I would pick out. Because again, that didn't exist five years ago. So that's a big change. And of course, the number of testing companies offering tests is also increasing. I would guess, I think there are probably more than 10 now, of which at least three or four are based in the UK. Some of these are resellers in the sense that they send the tests off to another lab to be done rather than having the lab facilities themselves. Um, amongst the large scale, as it were, private UK projects, that's you know, projects done by ordinary people like you and me, um, there's a large Scottish clan project which has been underway for many years. That's looking at 32 clans plus another few surnames. And they've got more than 2,000 results uh, linked together because they're trying to spot the connections between the clans as well as within the, each individual one. Um, but they haven't produced an academic paper yet or anything that you can read. Um, the Irish project is slightly different. They have produced a lot of material. And if you have a look at the... Um, the material that they've put up, you can actually look at the actual results and see some of the working they've done. Um, Ireland has one of the oldest systems of um, patrilineal hereditary surnames in the world. They go back even further than the ones in, in, in the UK. And what they did was, was um, in this project, they looked at 43 surnames, and they found that in general, if you share the same surname, you're 30 times more likely to share DNA than you would do randomly. So there's a very strong correlation between um, DNA and surnames. Now, this bottom line is the most surprising of all because I just assumed that because some Irish surnames are extremely common, they wouldn't um, appear to have a single common ancestor. They wouldn't have that great sort of genetic homogeneity. But apparently, O'Sullivan and Ryan both look as though they had a single ancestor within that 10th century time frame, so in the last 1,000 years, whereas some surnames like Murphy and Kelly, I believe these are actually nicknames so that's hardly surprising in, in terms of their origin. Um, the test environment's also improving greatly. Um, higher resolution results are more useful, and the number that you can buy on an off-the-shelf test has increased from 4 to 67 markers in the last 10 years. And the other bonus for you is, in the past, you had to buy a haplogroup test if you wanted to find out whether you were haplogroup R or haplogroup I or J. In the past, you had to buy a test. Now, the testing companies will infer that from you. Their databases are large enough with enough haplogroup tests associated with them that they can uh, pretty fairly guess what your haplogroup is going to be. And in those cases where they don't know or they're not able to guess, they'll generally give you a free test just in order to uh, improve their own database. So now, whenever you do a standard Y chromosome test, you'll get the haplogroup result back for free. Um, richer data comparison because there are many, many more results available. So there's a great increase in the free online comparative data. If you want to see results that are online that you can compare with, there's a Search and YBase. If you Google those two, those are two online databases of results you can look at. So if you've got your result back, you can type the results in there and that will spin out a list of all the men with the same, with, uh, who, who share the same result. And of course, as, as the number of tests increase, then we're beginning to see all of these DNA signatures um, uh, appear more and more frequently. And, of course, what's interesting is that some of them appear to be quite rare. And if you're very, very lucky and you have a rare DNA signature associated with your... Uh, anywhere in your surname project, you're, you're very fortunate indeed because it's very rare in the general population. If you've got a couple of people with the same surname that share it, you can be even more confident that they share it as a result of sharing the same surname rather than randomly. Um, the cost of a test is falling. A 33-marker test, which is you know, a good number of markers to use, is now had for as little as $90. Uh, of course, a few weeks ago, I could have said that was only £90. <laughs> Don't get me going. I'm a saver, not a debtor. <coughs> it's now £135. So it's not as cheap as it was a year ago, but it's still fairly cheap. Um, most of the testing companies offer regular discounts as well. So if you keep an eye on the testing companies, if you, um, you can hold back a bit and see if occasionally they will offer uh, special discounts. Also, if you have a surname where there's a surname project already underway, there are always discounts for joining an existing surname project. So you, if you order the tests through the surname project, 
then you'll get a lower rate than, as it were, the rack rates that you would pay if you walk into the front door. Um, and as there are more testing companies, there are fewer barriers to starting a surname project if you want to. Um, you don't need to know a great deal. You need to be a good organiser and a good persuader, but you don't really need to be a, a, you don't need to be a genetic scientist to run a, a, a surname DNA project. Um, I know you're going to ask which of the testing companies, so I put the slide up anyway. I put these in some sort of order. Um, Family Tree DNA is based in Houston, Texas. They were the very first ones that offered commercial tests for the Y chromosome, and they have by far the biggest database of results. If you go and look at their website, they'll say that 90% of genealogists use their uh, lab, and that's probably not actually an exaggeration. DNA Heritage is based in Weymouth. They're, that's not a lab, it's a reseller of tests. And they use the same lab that Ancestry use, uh, Ancestry fairly recent into the DNA game. Um, but both DNA Heritage and Ancestry use a, 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 a subsidiary of the Sorensen lab. You remember I mentioned the Sorensen Molecular Genetics Foundation? Well, they have a commercial lab which does DNA testing. So these two um, use their tests and, and get that particular lab to do it. So they don't do their own science, as it were, their own wet testing. Um, Family Genetics is a relatively new company based in Manchester. Um, they, do their, they have their own lab. Um, I don't know very much about them because um, the, there is a great deal of utility in using a lab that has a lot of results that you can compare with. And as you can imagine, because this one's been around for so many years, they have rather refined the benefits to uh, organisers of surname projects as well. They've got a lot of tools on their website for organising a surname project, uh, which are very useful indeed. At different times, I've used um, all of these. Um, if you want to find out more, there's an extremely useful web resource now called ISOG, which is the grandly titled International Society of Genetic Genealogy. Um, this is pioneered by um, some very energetic Americans, um, they have a lot of resources on their website which are well worth looking at. Uh, there's a forum that they run which uh, goes in exhaustive detail into all sorts of aspects of haplogroups. And there's a vast degree of knowledge in there. And one of the things that's really interesting about um, uh, this kind of DNA science is that it is, it is actually an area where very ordinary people, i.e. non-professional, non-academic, non-tenured scientists, can actually have an impact and the, some of the people who are involved in this society are now so ahead of the game that their work is being referenced by the academics in their papers instead of being the other way around. Um, latest news. This is really all in the last month since Christmas. Um, if, you've been, if you're an attentive reader of the BBC website, you'll have spotted there was something on the Neanderthal genome. There's usually a flurry of DNA stories that come out in January and February because the American Association for the Advancement of Science have their annual jamboree and there's usually a DNA strand in that and that tends to feed out stories that end up on the BBC website and the Guardian and other places. So there's a guy, in, uh, a German guy in Croatia called Svante Pabo who's done uh, a detailed analysis of Neanderthal bones and has come up with some conclusions that actually that humankind in the end, although we are very closely related, there wasn't any uh, interbreeding between the two. Um, there's a big argument as to when the last Neanderthal died out, because there's a cave in Gibraltar where it's, it's thought that they might have lived until about 18,000 years ago, in which case they would have met modern Homo sapiens moving, moving across into continental Europe. There's always been a big argument as to whether, whether we wiped them out or not but the argument at the moment appears to be in favour that they probably died out for other reasons. Um, there's an interesting group at Leicester University run by, um, uh, well, the head of the department is Mark Jobling, and his principal researcher is a woman called Turi King, and she's been doing a number of projects with him and others, um, basically trying to do uh, specific populations in the UK to try and work out uh, any, any more regional data on a, uh, they can find. They've produced one paper, which is in the um, Molecular Biology and Evolution. That's a, a paper produced by Oxford. If you type into Google MBE25, and the, the lead surname on the paper is Bowden. But if you put your MBE Wirral Lancashire, it'll, it'll come up. 
And basically they looked at, they were trying to find out whether there was an association between Scandinavian origin surnames in Lancashire and the Wirral, which are areas where the Vikings are supposed to have settled or not. And they found there was a correlation between the DNA and the surnames. They're currently starting a project in Yorkshire and the, the northeast coast because I think what their, their aim will be will be to try and distinguish between the uh, Swedish and Norwegian Vikings and the Danish Vikings came from slightly different areas. At the moment, we can't really distinguish between them. And, of course, the, the Danish Vikings went down the coast and settled Normandy, became the Normans and came across, and the Anglo-Saxons came from roughly the same area as well. So... Um, it's not, it's not possible at the moment to distinguish those sort of particular groups at the moment, but maybe if with more and more projects underway it might be possible. One conclusion that did come up recently, this was actually last week in the BBC, was their most recent paper, which hasn't been published in the paper version of this journal, but is now online, and that was looking... Now, one of the conclusions they came to was that the um, historic rate of illegitimacy is not as high as generally believed. Um, uh, there's it's like an urban myth that there's a 1 in 10 illegitimacy rate prevalent in the general population which is pretty scary because that would basically knock out the idea of uh, DNA tests and surname linkage um, which clearly isn't the case but they had a look at this and the figure that they came up with is, is 1 in 25 and there's been a huge debate over the years as to whether the historical illegitimacy rate varied at different times in for example Britain's history um, might it have been greater in the 16th century than now? Might it be less? Who knows? Um, they've, they've come up with an average rate of 1 in 25, and I think that's, that's one thing, area which will become much clearer in the future as we've got surnames with, with results and more regional projects. One thing they did do, because uh, base, this basic paper was really looking at a set of 40 surnames, they were doing something quite interesting because they went back and they said, well, nobody's actually looked at this whole area of DNA and surnames since a very early paper in the year 2000 done by Brian Sykes at Oxford, where his conclusion was that all the Sykes have a single common ancestor. No one's really done that in the academia since then. Um, of course, the family historians are beavering away and spending lots of money and lots of time, but the academics haven't really looked at it. So what they did was they went back and they looked at 40 surnames, and they tried to work out, just by testing two individuals per surname at a minimum, whether they could spot... Um, uh, an increased prevalence bet a linkage between surnames and DNA in the way that the Irish had when I told you there was a, um, a you had a, a, a 30 times better chance of having the same DNA if you had the same surname they were looking to see if the same was true in Britain and what they found was quite interesting is they tried to they classified these 40 surnames by their type of origin so whether they were linked to a particular topographical feature in the landscape so a very very specific place on the landscape, or a location like a, a, a village or a town, whether they um, had a male name or a female name as their root, so um, uh, uh, Christopher's or Jeffrey's or whatever, uh, whether it was a nickname or an occupational name. And basically what they found was that these ones, the topographic ones, tend to be low-frequency surnames and tend to have a single common ancestor. And as you go down this line location, patronymic, nickname, and occupational ones. By the time you get here, you get to much higher frequency surnames, and they're very unlikely to have a single common ancestor. Common sense, really. But it's nice to see someone set it out. And I think what, what's really interesting in, uh, for me is that we're actually going to see, now we've got so many surnames being tested, we're going to be able to do this kind of breakdown analysis against all those surnames and come up with much better results. And my final slide since we're 15 minutes overrun, is there is actually a new revolution underway in DNA testing. Um, the kind of commercial tests that we use have been around for 10 years, but everything is going to change in the next 10 years, that's for sure. And the reason I say this is um, I talked to a guy called Craig Venter recently, and he's the guy who did the Human Genome Project. If you remember, there were two parallel projects, one publicly funded that was putting its results on the internet on a day-by-day -day basis, and one privately funded in the States. And the privately funded one was run by Craig Venter. Um, he says that in the next 10 years, well, when I spoke to him, he said 10 years. By the time he gave the Dimbleby lecture a few months ago, it had come down to five years. He, he said that it, in a very short time, we'll be able to buy a DNA test 
that will look at our entire individual DNA sequence, so our personal version of the human genome. Um, just to try and grapple with this on a sort of metaphorical level, if you think of those standard Y chromosome tests, that's like looking at a few blades of grass in the field. And what Venter's saying is, in 10 years' time, you'll be able to get a test that will do your whole field, everything, every blade of grass. You'll know, you'll know your entire genetic sequence, if you want it, of course. Because that's the big question next, is, is that will open up a whole area of medical advance and medical awareness. Uh, and the question is whether people really want to know that or not. This event was recorded live on the 17th of February 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>